the shockwaves from the bridge disaster, as it happens with, you know, all disasters, have reverberated down through the decades. And he hears someone calling his name. Yeah. And it was it was just someone saying, Tommy, 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 and he never found that person. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today, we're going to look back over 50 years to the collapse of the Westgate Bridge, which, before the advent of COVID, was probably one of the two or three worst disasters ever to strike the state of Victoria. My colleague, Alex White, a prominent reporter at the Herald Sun, has been working on podcasts on the Westgate Bridge disaster. She's spoken to survivors and others, and she has, in fact, done a show with our sister podcast in black and white. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us, you have spoken, I know, to at least one man who worked on the bridge and survived the whole terrible thing, and possibly to others. What is it that you've found out over the last few weeks? Who have you spoken to? Well, look, obviously it's 50 years on, so a lot of the people that were there that day um, are actually, there's becoming less and less, they're dropping off. Yep. But there's still people that were there, and one that I spoke to, the most prominent, is a gentleman called Tommy Watson. Now, he was 23 years old, working as a um, as a rigger on the bridge on October 15th, and he was super lucky. He was up on the bridge every day with his workmates, and that day he just happened to be called to a job um, off the bridge. Um, on site, but not on the bridge. And he describes, even though it was 50 years ago, he describes the sounds that he heard right before the bridge came crashing down. And he says it it feels like yesterday to him. It's a memory that he's carried throughout his life. Um, And he's a really interesting story. He tells us about, you know, running to the wreckage, watching it go down, knowing that a lot of his friends were either on it or underneath it having lunch. And it's really harrowing and it's amazing the detail that he can actually recall. Yeah. He talks about pulling men from the wreckage that are his friends and he knows that they're severely disfigured. One thing that he explains was that he's going through the wreckage with all the other men and he hears someone calling his name. Yeah. And it was, it was just someone saying, Tommy, 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 and he never found that person. And he, and he kind of talks about how that still sits with him every single day. Yeah. So it's to, to the survivors that will be, you know, looking back on, on October 15th, it really is a huge deal that impacted their lives. Now, we have to consider as well that these days we talk about deaths in the workplace. I think there was 31 last year and we talk about how tragic those are. But definitely work sites are safer these days and you have to consider when the bridge went down, 35 men died uh, 18 more were injured, um, and it's the biggest industrial disaster that we've ever seen. And there's really harrowing stories of they go to nine funerals in the week and the, the company, John Holland, gives them a week off to deal with what they've kind of suffered and then they rock up to work after being to, at all these funerals and they get a week's pay and told, thank you very much for your service, we don't need you anymore. So that's why we've also interviewed a controversial unionist John Setka, his father was actually working on the bridge on that day and he says that having his dad 
I guess, dealing with the trauma growing up of being a survivor definitely set him down the path of, of safety on the construction site. And so we do chat to him about how the industrial disaster of the collapse has really changed the landscape in terms of construction and safety in Victoria. And did it play a, a big part in his personal decision? You know, John Secker, did it set him on that course in his life, the fact that his father had been involved? He was six years old when it happened. So when he looks back on it, he thinks it wasn't a really big, huge thing on the day, but he has memories of going to school and making cards for Father's Day and other kids in the class not doing it and him kind of saying, well, you know, why aren't you making something for your dad? And they're like, because he died on the Westgate. So he says that it, even though it wasn't that prominent, he still has really, really kind of strong little memories that stand out. He also, as a, as a teenager, heard his mum talking about his dad because his dad always, you know, like most men of the time, put on a really really strong and, and I'm completely okay, um, but he was clearly suffering from post-traumatic stress and used to actually wake up um, from nightmares, sweating and screaming. And the only way that he really knows about that is because he overheard his mum telling another woman about it. So it really is amazing that even at that time it was not only the conditions that people were working on, but it was also there was a real big culture of just get up, move on and deal with it. That is so true. The shockwaves from the bridge disaster, as it happens with you know all disasters, have reverberated down through the decades and probably made big differences to many families. You would think. Did you talk to anybody about the, you know, what they thought caused it and who they think was at fault, if anyone? Did any of that come up? Well, look, the one problem is because it's so far along, there, there was so after the collapse, the day after the collapse, Sir Henry Bolte, the Premier at the time, announced a Royal Commission into the collapse of the bridge. And um, obviously that, that went for months. There was thousands of documents handed up. Engineering firms have kind of looked at, at the issue after that. Now, unfortunately, the majority of those people are no longer with us. Yeah. Um, so we only have to rely on documentation. Now, you would have found this. The really interesting things that came out about this bridge design is I think there was only four bridges around the world that were built. I think it's called a box girder, which is essentially you you build from both sides and you join them in the middle. And the Royal Commission found that basically these two sides – we're not going to match up. There was about 11.4 centimetres difference in between the two of them, yeah. which led the head uh, engineer, Jack Hindshaw, yeah. um, on October 14th, they decided that they would remove some bolts on one side and just try to weigh the bridge down with concrete blocks and join them together and bolt it back up. Obviously, that was a pretty fateful decision. So it was during that operation where it all went spectacularly wrong. It is amazing, isn't it, when you see, you know, the average builder build a shed or a house and something doesn't quite fit, they do something they call, well, humour it. So they just rasp or cut a little bit off or adjust it to make the door swing or make the window fit or whatever. But And that's okay with, you know, building little things. But when you're building a massive structure like that, I don't think you can really adopt those sort of... um, techniques and hope to get away with it because 
really they were just doing what what the backyard builder might do building a chook shed. I guess one of the things that we have to consider though that was th- these were unprecedented um, projects at this time. Like yeah. it, it was huge and um, people just didn't really know and they were experimenting and they were taking really big gambles with safety. Um, and, of course, one of the bridges that the same gentleman actually designed four days um, before the West – Gate Bridge collapse also collapsed. I think it was it was in Europe somewhere. I think it was Ireland. In Wales. Wales. Um, yeah. And, of course, you know, it's not the internet. There's no internet. There was no, oh, quick, everyone tools down, get off. Um, instead it was no one knew and went to work and It would appear in retrospect or, or even within a matter of weeks then that the design was probably compromised or flawed it was a bold new design to give them a, a modern, sleek bridge that was virtually flat, sort of horizontal. It wasn't a big arch. It wasn't suspended from, um, you know, like the Golden Great Bridge, which is a suspension bridge. It was actually just a flat, mm. as we all know, we look at it and we drive over it. It's just very f- flat and it's mm. a, a terrible amount of uh, leverage downwards, the force of gravity. And it was a new, mm. a new technique and a new idea that hadn't really been proven. I was going to say, and when you talk to the um, the people that were on it, they actually talk about how excited they were to be on this project, working on something that was considered so modern and, and futuristic. It, it, yeah, it looked like a. It looked as different from old bridges as modern aircraft carriers look from you know sailing ships. It was just a very modern thing. In fact, one of our mm. former colleagues who's still around, Bruce Matthews, was a cadet reporter uh, and who was sent to the bridge when it came down. Um, he said that the only thing on the radio was an industrial accident in Spotswood. They didn't even know where they were heading to. And he said when we turned around the corner and could see it, he said it looked like an aircraft carrier with its back broken. That's what it looked like, which is a very, a very graphic description of, of what he saw. But he can recall, he was just a, you know, he was about 20. He can recall talking to men that were lined up against the fence, injured, and one would go into a coma and he would move to the next guy and talk to him. Um, and I talked to another former reporter who was 17. He arrived there, he worked for The Age. Got there with a photographer very early and he was talking to these injured men and the scenes they saw um, have never left them. You know, they've, they've always remembered what they saw and heard that day and um, it was a very, they're very graphic descriptions of, of a very terrible scene. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. It's it's very interesting as well, looking from a journalistic perspective, was if, if you had a tragedy like that occur today, um, there's no way that they would let anyone 
near the wreckage. Like even people trying to help, that would probably err on the side of caution to keep them away. But at that time, it was just head on down. And there's actually ABC footage of the smouldering wreck and, and men, you know, covered in mud and dust and blood kind of coming out and them saying, how do you feel? Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's very, very, um, you know, very, very, the responses are so iconic of that era. It's where you just see one guy say, oh, I'm, I'm smashed. I want to go to the pub. Yeah. And, you know, smoking cigarettes and obviously dealing with trauma. So I think it's, it is, if anyone wants to, it's, it's amazing to go and look at the footage as well, just to be reminded of, of what life was like back then as well. True. And, um, people my age are the bridge between that era and this era because I can remember it happening. I was a kid at school, but it was a very big, mm. a very big event. Well, I'm guessing for many people that the fall of the bridge would essentially be for them what I guess September 11th would be to to my generation where it was such a big thing that you remember. Yeah, in a, in a local sense, it's dead right, yeah. It was a, a Melbourne's version of something like that. Mm. But, you know, we looked at um, – mm. Uh, it's interesting, there was a 10-year-old boy called Udo Rockman. He was a little kid who'd come from Germany with his parents a few years earlier and he was going to school out at somewhere like Carnegie and they had a little, a small school excursion into, into the city and into Port Melbourne and his dad had lent him his very good grown-up camera, even though he was only 10, an AGFA, you know, camera. And he was focusing on a seagull to take a photo when he heard the crash. And he panned the camera sideways and snapped a shot of the bridge as it hit, as it hit the mudflats, as it hit. Wow. And it's got all the dust and the smoke and, the, you know, the debris flying in the air. And he, he caught, he just caught it by chance. And he sold that picture to the, uh, our predecessors, the, Sun News Pictorial and the Herald for a hundred dollars on an ice cream, <laughs> uh, and there's a picture. And I found I've, I tracked him down. He keeps a very low profile. That man. He later joined the Navy and became a an electronic weapons expert. A very highly technical wow. man, skilled engineer, one of the best engineers in his field in the world, I believe. And that's why he keeps a low profile. Mm. Anyway, I tracked him down. He said, "I've always felt." Um, he explained it all to me. He was really, really nice. But he said, I've always felt a bit bad because I was just a kid and they took a photograph of me smiling because I had the photo uh, of the bridge. I thought it was sort of mm. a good thing I'd done. And I didn't realise because I was 10 just how terrible it was. And I've always felt a bit guilty that the picture they ran of him in the paper was him smiling and holding his camera. Yeah. Um, so it's, he, he thought about it, you know, all these years later and he said, he said, it taught me something when I became an engineer myself. It taught me that engineers of all people can never afford to take a shortcut or make any assumptions or do anything badly. They have to do everything well because any mistake can end in disaster. So mm. it sort of shaped his life, mm. uh, which is uh, uh, an interesting sidelight on, on the bridge. And, of course, it would have shaped everyone's life that was associated with it. Mm. And, look, I think that lesson definitely carries through the whole industry. Um, you speak to um, engineers that are working on the on the big projects like the Melbourne Metro Tunnel at the moment and the amount of engineers that have to 
to recalculate designs on a daily basis um, and yeah. push the limits while also being very, very aware that their decisions can impact lives. Um, a lot of these men, if you actually talk to them, I didn't talk to them for the podcast, but I've talked to them for previous um, reasons. And the only reason that I really know about the uh, Westgate Bridge collapse, because I'm, I'm from Queensland, is that when I've talked to these men, they actually talk about the Westgate Bridge collapse. And a lot of them wouldn't have been alive when it happens, but it's still a lesson um, for them of what can go wrong. Oh, yeah. So it's really interesting that it carries down for everyone in the industry. But I do feel for the the gentleman being stoked about a photo and unfortunately being captured in time. Yeah, just a, a little boy that was proud of a picture. They gave him $100 and, you know, you can imagine. Poor little bloke. Mm. It showed too probably that, you know, every, the blame game started straight away. Everybody blamed everybody else and it was that old thing. Uh, and, and we see this now with the COVID response. No one wants to do a bad yeah. thing. No one wants to cause death. No one wants to, to do a stupid thing. But inevitably people do make mistakes. Some people make some mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes can have very big ramifications. Um, you know, if you and I make a mistake and mm. we misspell a word in the paper, it's not the end of the world. If you make a mistake with the Westgate Bridge or hotel quarantining, it does cost lives. Yeah, unfortunately it does cost lives and that's why people want to see accountability, yeah. A fair enough thing. The blame game started immediately and it really became a war, a propaganda war and a legal war in, in the inquiry between, you know, QCs with pistols drawn, uh, between the designers of the bridge, we were called Freeman Fox, a big, very big engineering design firm in the UK, and the local contractors who were mm-hmm. building the bridge, and that is John Holland. And so each was blaming the other. And I think there was evidence on both sides, but, you know, there's evidence that John Holland managed to get things a bit wrong and then want to take bolts out and pull things down a bit and all the rest of it. And there's also evidence that mm. the, the design, as you pointed out, the box girder design was new and untested and had, in fact, proven not really up to the task elsewhere. Uh, there was a collapse of another bridge after this. There was one in Europe after the Westgate, and they went around mm. the world looking at all the box girder bridges that they'd been designing and adding strengthening ironwork and things to them to make them stronger. The really spooky thing about the Westgate was that the previous March, so that is, what, six months earlier, the deputy opposition leader Mm. or or opposition leader, Frank Wilkes, had got up in the state parliament and said that he had information that there was a problem with the bridge, that there was a buckle that was buckling and that there were big safety concerns. Mm -hmm. And this was shouted down and howled down as sort of um, nonsense and rubbish and propaganda and how dare he say this. And he was shouted down uh, extensively only to be proven right. So it just shows that those things, human behaviour being what it is, there is that tendency for governments and bureaucrats and others, cheerleaders, not to want to hear bad news. 
three weeks before the collapse, all of the workers on the Westgate Bridge actually um, went on strike. They actually walked off the job. Um, the bridge had been had been making sounds, and people were clearly looking at, at the kind of ad hoc um, techniques that were being used, and and had a real fear for safety. And basically, these men for a day just said, "Tools down, we're not doing it." And the, the unions were definitely not as strong at that time, and the company basically said to them, "Fine, if you don't want a job, go. We'll just get someone else to come on, and we'll keep building." Um, so of course they all returned to work. So it, it was definitely found in the inquiry as well that this was this didn't come out of the blue. It wasn't a surprise. It was just the worst case scenario that they should have prepared for. The people running the inquiry, in fact, wrote a very strong finding, and uh, they wrote many thousands of words, of course. But the summary they made was they said it was that mistake was error, was on top of error, and it unfolded with the inevitability of a Greek tragedy, which is a very powerful way to express what happened, which some might say is maybe is what's happened with quarantine inquiry. Error begat error begat other errors, and um, the combination was um, a calamity. Well, I would say the one difference is, is that we've got a board of inquiry and not a royal commission with obviously a Royal Commission having plenty more power to uncover and investigate. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what those findings come That's out a good with. point that our current government perhaps has, some would say, some might allege this, that the current government has nobbled an inquiry rather more than Sir Henry Bolte, a notoriously powerful and long-serving Premier, nobbled that inquiry. 17 years, I think. Uh, yes, it yeah. was. He was an extremely mm. um, powerful figure in the state and to some extent throughout Australia in mm. a way that would suggest that he might try and rig it his own way, but I, I don't think they did. I think the Royal Commission was strong and independent. And it, as you say, it probably reflects poorly on the current inquiry. If you go back to the Royal Commission... Um, much the same like any major investigation that we've seen. You know, we've got the, the Banking Royal Commission. Um, people and workers kind of describe the the hearings and, and the findings in the end as a whitewash. So it kind of shows that I guess people are never really happy with what comes out of these inquiries as well. They always want to see more. There is that cynical saying which might have a grain of truth to it that, uh, governments tend not to call inquiries unless they know what the inquiry is going to find out. And there's probably some truth in that, that the uh, parameters of inquiries are often kept fairly narrow in order to minimise damage. And um, that's no reflection on those who are appointed to it necessarily, but it is a reflection on those who have their hands on the levers. Now, there's a book written about it by a former colleague of mine, anyway. I remember him, the late Bill Hitchings. Bill Hitchings was a Welsh journalist who came to with his family to work in Australia back in the late 60s and a really good bloke, well-liked by everyone. He covered the Chamberlain, Lindy Chamberlain case later. He was a, a real go-to senior journal and a great man. And he wrote a book about it 
And one thing is made clear in Bill Hitching's most excellent book is that the bridge was a microcosm of the modern Australia of, of you know, sort of migration. And the workers on the bridge were this total rainbow coalition of migrant workers from all over uh, the British Isles and Europe. Yeah, there was Croatians, there was Italians, there was Irishmen. Um, yeah, it was a real it, mixture. And they all got along well, yeah, it was, you know. There was something about it um, that meant they all, they all had a project to work on, which was interesting because it sort of echoed the Snowy River Scheme, which was a massive thing where people had come from all over the world to work on that and it set them up in a new country with, you know, tough jobs, big tough jobs up in the mountains, but they a lot of them made uh, did enough overtime and made enough money to set themselves up in, an, in, in the new world, uh, in the post-war world with their families in a new country. And so there, there was an element of that in the Westgate story, but of course, it ended in tragedy for some of them. Well, when you do talk to some of the, the surviving family members as well, because they were, they were left without um, the breadbringer in a lot of cases, and they say that it was these communities of of either either their their immigrant community or just the communities of the workers that had also been impacted um, in the decades following. They always supported the families. Um, you know, and provided meals and help and, and care with, with mums going off to do two jobs. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting aspect as well as the community that was created even after, um, years after the bridge had actually collapsed. Thanks for joining us today, Alex, on Life and Crimes. Thanks for having me. We've done this to uh, raise awareness of the podcasts that you've done, which have been put out through In Black and White, our sister podcast. Anyone who's keen to hear more of the interviews you've done should go to the In Black and White podcast. There are also the stories written by myself and by Alex, which are up online. If you look in the description of this episode for details of those stories, you will find them. On that note, we will conclude our podcast about the tragedy of the Westgate Bridge 50 years ago, October 1970. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman. A dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.